You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. So welcome, everybody. It's lovely to see you all in your little avatars at the top of my screen. Welcome to the second of this year's task Zoom sessions, which, as you will recall, is a collaboration between the University of Melbourne, Santi Pahuja, La Trobe, Kathleen Birrell, um, and myself at the University of New South Wales, uh, which I should say I am Zooming to you from today, uh, that is built on the unceded sovereign lands of the medical people, and I want to pay my respects to their elders past and present and to acknowledge their continuing sovereignty over this land and to support their struggles for self-determination and justice. The idea behind these sessions is that uh, every time we convene as a group, we invite a special guest to come and talk to us about an aspect of academic practice and we take the opportunity to let them share their views about that practice and how they go about doing it, some of the things that they have tried and uh, some of the things that they have learnt. And today we are really uh, grateful to have uh, Connell Parsley come and talk to us about working with other disciplines. Um, I can think of few better people to talk to us about that particular topic than Connell, who is a reader at Kent Law School. He is many, many things, which is why he's going to be talking to us about working with and across disciplines. But he is a scholar of and a translator of Agamben and the Italian biopolitical uh, tradition. He's a law and humanities, a critical legal thinker, and is currently working on a, a project uh, about law and the human and about different forms of AI regulation. And I think he's giving a talk in Melbourne Law School tomorrow, which I'll be happily face-to-face and able to attend tomorrow afternoon. So, Without further ado, I'm going to pass the conch to Connell and thank you for coming and joining us and we really look forward to listening to your reflections on uh, working with other disciplines. Thanks so much, Ben, um, for that great introduction and thanks to Kathleen, Sun and Ben for the invitation to TASK. Can you say TASK? Makes me sound like a northerner. Uh, it's a, what a wonderful initiative and uh, it's a, there's a sort of lack of open dialogue on how we do what we do, I think, often as academics. And so I'm really pleased to be here. And I'm sitting in Melbourne Law School too, my, my sort of intellectual home and origin point, um, which I'll kind of actually start um, off by talking about a little bit, because when Kathleen sent me the email to invite me to talk about uh, interdisciplinarity and working with um, people in other disciplines, the first thing I thought was, doesn't everyone do that? And it's sort of, you know, what what would, I'm, I'm sure everyone listening does <laughs> do that. And it made me wonder whether I'm actually particularly interesting to hear from on this at all, considering um, I learned from Sun and Sean McVeigh and Peter Rush and all of my teachers um, coming up through Melbourne Law School and then doing a PhD here about the value of interdisciplinary legal work. It sort of seemed pretty essential if you want to think about what law is doing. I mean, we used to have to do combined degrees, law and something else, precisely because this, of this idea that law, law alone wouldn't be enough to generate people who could do meaningful legal work. Um, so let's get that out of the way. And I'm really keen to hear what other people think too about um, how essential interdisciplinarity is to law legal work today. How do we access the really big and important questions um, that our research tries to take on? Arguably, it's only through conversations and learning from lots of other people in lots of other fields. So yeah, I feel like I got a pretty good head start by being at Melbourne Law School and um, learning from from those scholars and other people. But also, it seemed to me, my origin point is very much interdisciplinary from the point of view that, you know, becoming an, an adult in Melbourne at, at that time in the 90s was very much um, a sort of open intellectual experience with lots of cross input from different disciplines, creative practice, arts, the arts and, and music, etc. And I feel like that's how I just learned to think um, and learn to work on uh, problems. And so I guess it was no surprise that all of my, I feel like all of my, all of my work has been interdisciplinary in one way or another. So appreciating that many of you may not know me, I, I thought I'd just say a little bit about the kind of stuff I've been doing that has been interdisciplinary. So I suppose there's the sort of individual research work that we all do, reading literatures from other disciplines, 
um, drawing on other disciplines, methods and questions, or even taking up their kinds of objects and trying to process them through our questions and our frameworks that we might inherit from having to learn legal doctrine and understand how law and governance kind of works. Um, but beyond that, I guess, as I started to expand um, and add to my intellectual portfolio, I really started to find great value in working with people from uh, other disciplines, you know, a range of contexts, uh, things like uh, even just doing edited collections on questions that might be fairly strictly legal. I found it really interesting or important to invite uh, people who are working maybe on law or on law adjacent things um, from outside of legal disciplines to get their views. So editing other people's work is a really important context for that. As Ben mentioned, I've done a lot of, um, then there's another kind of interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary work that we do, which is kind of showing up in other people's disciplines because we have a really vested interest in what they're doing. And that means sort of passing as a political theorist or passing as an art historian, which is which is very fraught, you know, um, it's sometimes very important to, you know, come with open hands and say, hey, I don't really know anything about what you do, uh, but, I'm, but I'd like to learn. So those sorts of things. Um, and for me, that really involved, um, as Ben mentioned, kind of translating Italian thought and becoming kind of enmeshed in, in those circles, eventually being invited on the International Advisory Board of the Journal of Italian Philosophy, um, those sorts of things. So you end up in lots of different kinds of conversations with people who may not know the first thing about my so-called home discipline. So there's lots of lots of discussions and, and academic meetings that involve involve translation. You know, and I don't mean translating texts, but I mean translate talking to people across across languages um, and intellectual idioms. Uh, I've also done a bunch of advisory work for people because of legal expertise, but where my legal expertise isn't really the main thing I'm being asked to provide. So thinking about being asked to be on the advisory board of the Serpentine Galleries in the UK, their research and, and development platform which is a really exciting creative intellectual space, doing really lateral kind of thinking about how legal systems are changing, how they're enmeshed in different kinds of spheres of practice and involve, involving quite often suspending your disciplinary understandings or disciplinary norms about where, like what I think often in terms of not necessarily different methods or subject matters, but different kinds of endpoint or goals or outputs that different disciplines and different fields kind of are, are interested in. I first learned about that when writing, um, I did a linguistics degree with my law degree and um, remember writing for Maureen Teen, who was a great um, academic here at Melbourne Law School and writing on uh, linguistic evidence in um, native title cases and feeling like having to really kind of struggle because I wasn't fully in control of either discourse, the linguistic, well, you know, as an undergraduate um, or, or the legal stuff and really feeling pulled in different directions by the different materials that I was reading. They wanted different kinds of outcomes. They wanted to hit different kinds of rhetorical points and they wanted to um, create um, uh, different, I guess, punchlines, you could call it. So there's a lot of managing of that um, sort of managing discourses and their different expectations that goes along with this kind of interdisciplinary work. I guess a big one for me has also been hosting people in interdisciplinary spaces. So um, I run a, well, I help, have helped to run a um, centre at the University of Kent called the Centre for Critical Thought, which is just anyone who wants to work on critical kind of work from across all disciplines. And so there's a lot of uh, hosting people. And I also designed a summer school in critical theory, which we were running in Paris for some time, which was also completely open and interdisciplinary. And I guess I only mentioned that because people were so often shocked to find that a lawyer was doing that. There's nothing that remarkable about that, I think, in terms of critical theory world or political theory world. But I think people were quite often shocked by that. And that's something I wanted to mention, I guess, um, for lawyers, particularly doing interdisciplinary work, there is a kind of, you have to be aware what, what signs you're giving off as a legal scholar and have people from different disciplines can take that quite differently or have have quite strange often expectations of you because of their understandings about law and legal scholarship and what that might be uh, or mean. So quite often um, that's something you have to manage. I guess more recently, as Ben mentioned, I put together a really uh, big seven-year funded project that I think draws together pretty much all of my different intellectual spheres and, and interests Yes, I finally succeeded in doing something that does that on administrative decision making using um, philosophy and and philosophies of technosocial ecologies and other disciplines from within the humanities to kind of develop new normative frameworks and paradigms for understanding what decision making is and what it might look like, and then leveraging creatives the creative sphere, including collaborators at Serpentine Galleries um, and some other arts agencies. 
to kind of creatively experiment using that creative space to um, model and remodel with computer scientists and lawyers and practitioners um, different kinds of decision system and to reflect normatively on what's good or bad about them in ways that perhaps we haven't thought about before. So that um, is something we could talk about uh, because it's involved, although not a lot of that work has actually happened yet, putting together the project was involved, um, I think I had about 25 letters of support from different collaborators from the judiciary in the Supreme Court in the UK, through to philosophers in Hong Kong, through to, you know, artists. So it involved a lot of kind of diplomacy and uh, talking across disciplines, assuaging people's fears about their own disciplinary expertise and whether and how it was relevant within a kind of project on administrative decision making. So that's something I have definitely I definitely found a real, a really steep learning um, curve, and it's something that uh, colleagues and scholars have approached me about since then, as they've put together their own projects and particularly um, looked to put together advisory boards from across a range of disciplines. So that's something that some of you may have had to do or may need to do uh, in the future that maybe we could share tips on. Because I think I, because I had I think great advisors and a lot of help from colleagues and friends. Um, that went relatively smoothly for me. And so I feel I've been able to share that with people who haven't been as um, as sort of lucky about how that advisory boards and stuff have fallen into place. I guess um, I don't particularly want to say all that much more uh, as a sort of initial bite. I have a heap, a heap more notes and things to talk about, but maybe I could just tell you guys the categories of things I thought were interesting to talk about. And if people think they're interesting too, then we can talk about them. So the first one, I realized what really really sharpened my pencil as um as people sometimes unfortunately say in thinking about this was thinking about the attempted interdisciplinary collaborations that I had had that failed that didn't work that nothing happened out of them they they broke down and things didn't go uh, where we wanted them to and so in in two particular cases just didn't go anywhere and they sort of consigned to the graveyard of of plans. Um, those are, I have a couple of great, great failure stories and maybe other people have some too. Um, I have some notes on the kind of stuff I was talking about before, about how different disciplines don't just have different concepts or frameworks or stuff, but kind of different directions of movement or different expectations and how to manage those. I wanted to talk about planning and organization, like how I would have done things differently, maybe how you plan and like what sorts of hard conversations you should have with interdisciplinary collaborators if you want it to kind of go pretty smoothly. Again, drawing on the benefits of, of failure. I want to talk about some of the negatives and ambivalences about interdisciplinary work today. It's not as, a lot of us really valorize it. And as, as I led off by saying, I think for me, the, the you know, when interdisciplinary work works, it can do something that other kinds of work can't and that what it can do is really important and valuable. But it's not it's not always seen as a positive thing, and it can also be professionally really difficult to make your profile or career, you know, all over the place in different disciplines. That's really hard, and yeah, and we can talk about um, advisory boards and stuff. I guess I had three main um, takeaways that I want to make sure I say. Um, and so that first one is that there are no rules for interdisciplinary collaboration, which is great. There are a lot fewer expectations about what it should look like. And that's great and really empowering and um, can let you get at research questions that, that are maybe uh, difficult to approach in other ways. But with that kind of freedom comes a whole set of responsibilities and, and kind of duties, particularly I want to, I'd like to talk about responsibility to other disciplines as sort of legal trespassers who just wander into fields and start saying what's what, or just grabbing stuff and decontextualizing it and putting it into your own work as if it, as if you can simply do that, which, which, you, you know, I guess you can, but it's not a very good way to go. It'll, it'll burn a lot of bridges for you and it will definitely shut down audiences that you should have. Um, so yeah, thinking about that tension between freedom and and kind of discipline or freedom and um, responsibility or freedom and respect, including for your own discipline, by the way. Secondly, is thinking about how to manage the law, how you come across as a law scholar, if you are a law scholar, or if you, if you think of yourself as one. Um, and then thirdly, I did want to talk about how the academy may not see your interdisciplinary work as as valuable or as rateable as um or as legible as as purely disciplinary work so those are things that i think we could maybe talk about and with that 
Connell, that's that's fantastic. A really rich set of kind of opening reflections to get us started. I've just put in the chat an encouragement to people to post their questions in the chat, or if you're more brave than that, you can put your virtual hand up, or if you're even more brave than that, you can just put your actual hand up and wave at me with your video on, or just unmic. While you are summoning that bravery, I'm going to cheat and abuse chair's privilege. And I wanted to kind of talk to Connell a little bit. I mean, so much of what you said can take us off in heaps of different directions and we could have really long discussions about this. I'm kind of interested in like your reflections about hosting events, interdisciplinary events, and bringing people together and getting kind of conversations started. So much of what you um, were talking about was about the kind of affective life of interdisciplinarity and how you had to manage people's disciplinary hang-ups and egos and investments and um, how you had to, you know, acknowledge how you were coming across as a lawyer and how people might receive a lawyer and, you know, historians and philosophers, etc. Um, I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit more about, you know, whether you thought there was a particular affect or ethos or attunement, I'm just coming up with different words, about about, inter, about interdisciplinary scholarship that conduces to good conversations. Does it require a kind of humility or is it more about curiosity? I'm just interested, or, you know, do we have to start with method? Is that the hook that gets us to, to talk? I'm interested to hear any reflections that you might have about that, but keep thinking of question, other questions, everybody. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, that's great. A lot of people, um, I've been in a few different sort of meta conversations about interdisciplinarity recently. And one that one phrase that comes back a lot is this kind of epistemic humility. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, that came up in a, a thing I was doing with co Melbourne colleague Jake Coldenfine at, um, in a context with computer scientists and humanities and legal scholars and social scientists. Yeah, epistemic humility is kind of a great uh, great place to start. And by that, I suppose, setting aside the truth claims or endpoints of whatever your particular investments kind of are, I suppose the downside of using a term like that is it, it turns it into a theorization, which doesn't isn't always that helpful as a methodologically, like how do you actually get people in a room and work with them or convince people that what you're doing isn't too scary for them or that they can contribute to it. By the way, you'd be you'd be surprised who is is epistemically humble about what they've got. I remember asking Lord Sales of the UK Supreme Court um, to be an advisor on my current project. And he said, oh, are you sure? When he heard the framing of the project, which does sound a little bit sort of fancy and overblown, you know, he said, Are you sure you want me? I, I only just I just know a lot about administrative law. I'm <laughs> like, so, you know, you're saying, yes, that's exactly what I need. And I need, you know, that is really valuable. I, that's all I need from you. I don't need anything else from you. That's what I need. And I and I let me worry about how other people understand what you're saying. So there's a there's an interesting sort of um, thing about hosting. So, Ben, you asked about sort of hosting academic spaces. It, it's sort of hard to do. I mean, there's I'm talking to some, I'm looking on my little screen here of some consummate hosts who are much better at it than I am. Um, but I think it do definitely does involve a sort of really delicate balance of um, leading and opening spaces, even in a sort of physical or congenial um, kind of sense or in an institutional sense. So having a, a space from which to open up to other people is really important. And at the same time, you know, learning how to give people the floor and understanding what part of the floor they might want, if I could extend that the floor metaphor just a little bit further. Uh, but so that I think probably most people would sort of understand intuitively. I mean, I guess I would just add one more thing to that. And to me, it's it's the importance of question. So understanding if it's sort of hard to think about the telos or direction of momentum of different disciplines. It, I mean, it, it might be more intuitive to just think about what kinds of question different disciplines are asking and to, uh, Sunday's got a question on the theme of questions. So this, this to me is actually super important. And actually, I didn't mention it as one of my three takeaways, but if I could add a fourth takeaway, it might be something like, I think a lot of the problems with just even a research meeting, just where there's nothing at stake, no one's trying to produce anything together. They just, they just want to meet and talk. 
I think it can be helpful to have a meta conversation about questions. What sorts of questions are we asking about this thing? And then working through the questions that we have rather than the expertise or the objects or the outputs or the, you know, all those sorts of things. The questions are tremendously powerful. And I suppose as a research high degree supervisor too, I've started to realize once the questions are really good and they're really there, then given enough energy and time, the, the rest kind of will come. And I think that's true too of interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary work if you uh, i would definitely distinguish between different kinds of those things opening spaces appearing in other people's venues and spaces or inviting someone to your project or co-designing a project the clearer you can be about what questions you are and aren't asking and the clearer people can position themselves within that and have a really conscious uh responsible discussion about what their role is going to be within that and what each person can kind of bring so yeah uh you can you can make people feel super at home by understanding what their questions are and understanding why they work on them and, and maybe even how. That's really fantastic. And you've teed me up on the question to go to Sandhya to ask a question, maybe about questions. So I'm going to go to Sandhya first and then I'll read Carly's question out from the chat afterwards. San? Thanks, Camel. Um, thanks. So whenever I try to have interdisciplinary conversations, I find it really hard to know where to start and I am very attracted to your idea of attending to the kinds of questions that we ask as a way to figuring out what questions one can ask together. But I just wondered if you had an, any anecdote or example that springs to mind of conversation you had with people from other disciplines that turned out really well and whether you can reflect on how you began that conversation in a really practical way because I find that it takes ages to even find a shared language or to realise what your blind spots are when you talk to other people or what they take for granted. And so I just wondered if you can remember a good beginning. Yeah. So I'll give you one that was a great beginning but a terrible end. I mean, it was... <laughs> spectacular me and that person like don't talk anymore and the, you know you, those who know me know that's pretty rare you know I'll, I'll talk to anyone no matter what so but yeah so what it was was um we were both interested in problems about ethics it was a problem about the person who I'm talking about is sort of a creative arts researcher and and critical philosopher working on materiality and uh and and filmic and image media uh, and I sort of was working on image and filmic media as well. And we had, we shared, what we shared was a kind of interest in a similar kind of art. There was a particular set of artists that we'd sort of bonded over and sort of gone, yeah, that, I mean, that's really interesting. I think we had different affects towards them, but we both agreed they were super interesting examples. And so one thing I guess I would say is it depends how you've, how you've met and what you're trying to do. But if all you're trying to do is talk to people then I, I think it's it's pretty easy to find a shared um, fascination, right? So just focus on what what's fascinating to you and uh, asking a lot of questions. So I, I I do think that why that collaboration imploded uh, had nothing to do with that. I think that shared fascination was there. I think it, it went wrong for other reasons. Um, the conversation was always really good, and. And the yeah, the reason it went wrong was much more practical role and responsibility and timing related stuff that in the in the academy can be fatal, of course, because our job is so so pressurized and and can be so weird and and powery. So so it was nothing to do with that. Yeah, I, I think um, we we re, it's about finding common ground first, I think, and then ex learning to kind of cope with each other's positions on things um, by by again, I think using this kind of idea of questions are having different questions um i also think any share anything shared is is great is a great starting point it, and that to me is often i mean just with the kind of work i do it's quite often a theorist or a or a theoretical frame or something where you know you might um i really think of um theory not as a field, but as a kind of lingua franca that, that different people across all kinds of fields might do. You might say, someone might be working on Jean-Luc Nancy, and you might think, wow, fantastic, you know, I really enjoyed piece X, or 
or whatever. And so I think finding those kind of anything in common is kind of good to get things going. I guess the question would be if that if that doesn't happen easily, I'm personally probably I've learned not to pursue things beyond that. I might ask myself why why am I interested in talking to that person if I can't if there isn't anything that that sort of really sparks that excitement or some kind of intellectual factor that just kind of takes off. And uh, I have to say, I haven't I've never been particularly deliberate about all these things. So it's sort of I'm reinventing re-engineering things from from scratch here but i definitely think that sort of there's got to be some sort of personal um intellectual commonality that gets you going yeah i don't know if that answers your question son well sort of i mean i agree with you and i wouldn't want to talk to people with whom i didn't already want to talk i suppose the question is a more nitty-gritty one about just say you want to start a collaboration how do you initiate even the question about the question so you're right that coming at it through a text is a classic way especially those of us who were like the at the sort of Peter Fitzpatrick school of PhD study where the text would always be the thing that began the conversation and I've experimented with getting people from different disciplines to talk about an object. So, you know, like talk about a company or talk about a chair or talk about a spoon and see mm. what, what your disciplinary training invites you to say about that thing as opposed to about that tech. It's really interesting. I guess, um, I guess I'm uh, assuming already that the relationship has somehow been established and that you know you do want to talk to people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you speak really productively in ways that make the whole greater than the sum of the parts so mm. that you don't just end up translating one person's discipline into another all the time? But mm. something that people read and go, wow, this is really, this is really more than could have been produced by a single person in one disciplinary, with one mm. type of training. So, yeah. kind of question about the detail of moving the relationship forward. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I wish I knew um, why that works so well sometimes and why it doesn't. And and sort of in my notes preparing to talk today, I kind of had a big question mark on like how much of that just is personal. Like it just, it just is how different people talk to each other and how they relate to each other. I've got a collaborator um, uh, who works at a, who directs an art agency called Furtherfield in the UK, who is really inspiring to me and has contributed heaps to the design of um, the methodology of my current project. And um, that's someone who I met in a, um, there was this sort of big um, uh, Serpentine Galleries planning day. And so we're, it's like 60 people from across different um, academic and, and uh, industry sectors, just kind of doing these weird exercises that, Serpentine galleries were making us do some of which clearly had a point and others which didn't and and I, I often wonder why um Ruth and I ended up talking that day and saying there's something here we've got to because I like the way you answered this question or yes yeah, I really liked your comment on on why and um in a way it's just like meeting anybody sometimes you just go yeah you're great um but how how it unfolded was interesting because it, it, it we sort of said let's do something yeah yeah, yeah let's do something um, which has been said many times and nothing happened. So it's interesting that eventually something did happen. And yeah, I don't really know why. I mean, apart from like Ben said at the start, like you really do have to be generous and listen to other people and really think about, I, I find that as a younger person, I was much more, I think I did a lot of throwing myself into other disciplines and going, yeah, yeah, you guys have such great um, methods or such interesting stuff. And I was really selling out what I had been trained to do or what I brought to to that and I was really I mean in hindsight that probably worked well for me because I'm a bit of a sponge and I was able to absorb a lot without worrying how it was hitting me like what was going it was just going in and but I, I think everyone has to do a bit of that I think you really do have to listen to other people you have to take really seriously putting yourself in their position and understanding where they're coming from and why um now that I'm a lot more careful and I see my time is a lot more constrained you know, which it is this you know there's there's less time to sort of open x number of collaborations i think i'm much more careful about wondering how that meshes with kind of more formed lines of inquiry that i've got and so but you know that's good that's that's 
they other collaborators should have to worry about what I want too, right? So it's about everyone being open. And and I think, I don't know if this is practical, but I do think probably it shouldn't, you shouldn't wait too long before opening the question about questions, as you put it, son. I think probably it's the most important thing, depending what you want out of it. I mean, different people collaborate across disciplines for different reasons, don't they? So it depends um, what what you need and, and why you're collaborating. Yeah. It's a hard one though. It's a really great question, son. I think you're the kind of person who would think really well about that and have, have actual answers. Um, so I'll, I'll look forward to <laughs> you telling me more about how to do that. Connell, I just want to pick up on your um, comment about, you know, you as a kind of juridical sponge launching into these other disciplines and kind of um, perhaps, you know, not, thinking about your own training and inheritance and what you had to bring and give as a lawyer. I mean, be interested to hear more about that, but that kind of picks up on a question from Carly in the chat whose laptop is not um, being her friend today. So I'm going to jump in and read out that question. Um, Thanks, Connell. I'm interested to hear more about what you said about exercising responsibility and respect towards other disciplines. And I, I seem to, this is me now. I mean, I seem to recall you suggesting that lawyers had a bad tendency in this regard to kind of go and take more than they gave perhaps in those in those settings. Maybe some examples. Carly, this is, interacts with scientists and social scientists a lot in her work. So she'd love to hear your reflections about that question of responsibility and respect towards other disciplines. Mm. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Carly. That's a really big one. I mean, I have heaps of examples because I think it's sort of all about this in a way. And I'm, I saw people nodding too when I mentioned that the first time. And so maybe other people have examples that are really kind of clear and portable. Just trying to think if I can, I mean, obviously I can think of interdisciplinary scholars who are, who are more even more tetchy about this than I am, but I am a bit tetchy about it. I suppose just because it seems like there, it seems like particularly legal scholars can get away because their audience is quite often the legal academy. They can quite get often get away with cherry picking stuff from other disciplines or other literatures and kind of representing that to the legal academy as a kind of fairly settled account. Whereas you might often, if you spend time, so on the theme of responsibility, going to those disciplines, conferences or events, or really wading into their questions and understanding how, wh- why the controversies in their field are the ones that they are and how they've been handled and what the history, the intellectual history is of those. It can be, uh, you, you can understand that it, it, it's quite often problematic. So in other words, there's sort of too much primacy given to the legal framework or the legal kind of idea or the legal um, ethos. I suppose. So that's where that kind of tetchiness comes from. But in a way, it's sort of similar to what Sun's saying. Like, I think you can have a much better conversation with people from other disciplines if you show that you know and understand or respect like where things are are coming. They can be quite surprised to hear a legal scholar, you know, refer to obscure niche or obscure material from within their discipline, which you don't do deliberately. But, you know, quite often it's um, not maybe often the the core disciplinary questions from another field that you might be interested in. It might be much more kind of lateral or, or oblique parts of the, 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 those fields. Let me think though, the questions about an, a specific example. Well, I mean, here's one. So I recently did an edited collection called Interdisciplinarities where it was basically all, all the contributors were from Kent Law School where I work and it was a book about method, so research method. And the point, I guess the point of the book was to say there, there is no one way to do interdisciplinary research and there's not even really a kind of worked out methodology. And we were looking at people, getting people to sort of lift the lid on their, how they might do a hypothetical research task that, that we had set for them to talk about. And um, so that was an that was an interesting exercise. And so I had the chance to write a chapter for that book and reflecting about what I would actually do if I had to write a specific kind of book chapter. And I decided to write about kind of cultural techniques of presenting specific examples, you know, as as exemplary in the legal field and looking at how, like what kind of conceptual work that involves and comparing it with this a similar thing that happens in art history and in and cultural anthropology. And that's the kind of thing I worry about, like how, do, how does sort of, how does intellection as a 
in a general sense, not just within one field, but across really key fields that do a specific intellectual tasks. How do they how do they differ in how that works? I was relieved not to have to actually do that work, but to talk about what I would have to do if I had to do it, because it would have been epic. But it that's an example of not assuming just because I know how a problem is set up in my field, even as a sort of complex intellectual problem, to try and step back and say, how do other fields handle a, a similar task? They may not even write directly about the task. You might have to reconstruct from their literature how, how they're doing it, which would be quite difficult as well. And just to conclude that example, which I admit is a little bit arcane, my co-editor <laughs> remarked how hard I make my own life for myself. And I think that's probably um, true. But, it, but you know, more straightforwardly, read uh, read other disciplines literatures like or try and if you if you can't read them then that's there's something interesting about that that's an opening for a discussion with a person who can read them like what's that all about yeah uh so i hope that is vaguely helpful <laughs> that's yeah it is indeed um as Carly is saying in the chat, I can see Laura has got her virtual hand up Laura do you want to ask your question Thanks so much. Um, and thanks, Connell, for your thoughts today. So many things. I'd really like to um, take you up on a lot of your so generous overtures to discussion. Maybe just on a practical level, talking about, you were talking about planning and collaborations. So I'm about to start a new big sort of project with collaborators in Switzerland that is explicitly pitched as an interdisciplinary project specifically around kind of visual cultures and as part of that would be great to kind of bring in some other institutions that weren't university institutions into that kind of mix so if you have any kind of thoughts on just really practical ways to begin that process that would be really useful um, and also as part of starting this project, we had to put together an advisory board that at the moment is quite small. But I'd like to hear some of your thoughts on this sort of broad idea of finding good academic mentors in different fields, sort of beyond your initial network of people that you know already, perhaps coming out of a PhD program. And just really practically too, are you a fan of the cold email or how do you use existing networks to jump off into that space or, or how do you actually do that? Just a sort of practical ways in before then I have other more abstract questions, <laughs> of course, about interdisciplinary work, but maybe I'll leave it there for now. Thank you so much, Laura. It's really good to see you. <laughs> and, um, and, and yeah, great, great questions. So I think your question raised a few maybe different strands and one was about kind of roles and sort of planning and clarity around planning. Planning is really hard in the academy because we all have so much to do, different kinds of tasks, but I think it's, it's worth being as clear as possible as you can about, as I said, questions, although I guess in the, in your new research project, um, which I have heard a little bit about in the past, um, sounds really uh, exciting and potentially messy in some of the ways that my work is also messy. I mean, all research really is messy. We should we should be clear on that. But yeah, messy in similar ways. So quite often our research, when we um, devise projects that uh, get funded, normally they are funded not only for their intellectual brilliance and their questions, but usually for other kinds of output or other kinds of tasks, whether it be developing research methodologies or, you know, putting on alternative outputs or, or whatever. And so we're talking about being clear about questions and what our expertise is in relation to those questions and what we, who's going to work on them or, 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 or bring something to those questions, but also clear about other kinds of just tasks, things that need to happen um, and who's going to work on those. So um, definitely, I think, and I also want to distinguish, I guess, between people you're working, you're designing with versus people you're executing with versus people you're getting to execute for you, right? So that might be an advise, advisory board role. So yeah, these kinds of complex research projects involve at least those categories of things and probably more. But I guess on terms of with, with anyone who's involved in the project, you want to be clear about what the role is, why they're there. And the, the reason for that is not really to limit anyone, but because we have so much to do. We need limits and boundaries to the to what we have to deliver or bring to a to a task. And I, I've learned that research goes much better and more smoothly if everyone knows where the boundaries of their role are and what they're responsible for or not responsible for. That can actually be a bit of a challenge in 
in peer-to-peer collaborative work where it's not obvious that someone should be responsible for anything particularly that everyone's responsible for everything as we all know that's a disaster so it can be helpful to kind of set an administrative leader for specific sectors of the project maybe so if we're all intellectual equals or contributing equally or co-designing a research project still it's good to have someone who's responsible for particular things so that's what I meant by being clear like clear about questions clear about roles who's who's going to set deadlines who's going to look after deadlines if they go if they rush past all those sorts of things are really important and the 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 clearer you are about that the less offensive it is when that email comes hey where's that thing because you know it was their job to send you that email right so things like that obviously timelining and time framing is key to to these kind of, these kinds of work so being clear about all that stuff is super important and i guess everyone i guess on their own certainly i would i have now learned to no matter what my role is, no matter whether I'm supposed to be conducting everyone else as I am in my new project or whatever else, always remember why you're doing the project and what you're bringing to it and why it's really important to you. So those are, because that'll equip you to have those difficult discussions with people when they come up or, and so on the topic of cold emailing people to be on your advisory board, for example, the more articulate, like not wordy, but the more clear and concise and, and, you know, firm you are about what it's for and what you're doing and what it means to you, the, the more likely I think they are to, to say yes. So drifting into that question about a multidisciplinary advisory board, a few things to say. So the first one is you're definitely better off not cold emailing anybody people's inboxes are full of things. And unless there's some great reason why that email is inherently really interesting to them, they'll probably, they may not even reply. So you definitely don't want to get in a position of cold emailing people. Just trying to think about my own experience. I did, uh, I cold emailed Lord Sales and that worked out, but I don't think, I think he might've been the only one. I have another judge on the advisory board, an Australian judge, but I just, you know, just pull in any thin connection, like, hi, um, you know, I once heard you talk at, it just doesn't matter. Anything's better than nothing. So you want any kind of uh, link to, to make a contact like that. I think you want to, the other thing I'd say about that is if you are cold emailing people or semi-cold, like lukewarm emailing people, you 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 need to make clear to them why the research is good or important, right? That's that's the main thing. They may just be really interested in it, but I doubt it. Whatever it is we're doing, like we, we often see, especially in this kind of like hyper-specialized academy that we all live in, like we find these kind of really niche things to create a point of difference in the field or to whatever, whatever, whatever. That's playing increasingly badly with people who aren't <laughs> academic researchers, I think. So, you know, you want to find a, a great reason why this is sort of interesting for them to be involved with. The other thing, I, the main thing I'll say is if you are cold emailing people, Think about them and their position and, and what they are and what they might need or want, but don't make the mistake, which I've recently seen several people making and coming to me, asking to troublesho- troubleshoot their invitation email that minimizes, that they think they're doing them a favor by saying, oh, it's not much work or it's, on, it's only this, you know, I don't think, I think it's much more important to be clear about what work the work is to show you understand their perspective, their expertise and what it's useful for, and to show them why their time commitment of, I don't know, um, three two-hour meetings in a in a one-year period um, would greatly help and advance the research you're doing. So how can they ha- bring what they have and know that what they have is really relevant and useful, uh, not worry about other additional demands being placed on them and showing them with with just everything you know right now and a tiny bit of time you can make a huge difference to to this research program so that's about you know just clarity and managing um expectations and commitments i don't know if i've answered your question no that's super useful thank you thanks connor that's really rich and mercilessly riff off my horrible phraseology i i the tepid email that's I'm going to start. I've been sending a few already today. Um, I'm going to abuse uh, chair privileges again. Um, if people are still thinking of questions, they want to fire at you, Connell. But one thing I was struck by um, on your list of things that you you know wanted to talk about was this legibility question. 
um, especially I suppose for people as many are on this call kind of at the beginning of careers um, as PhDs or recently graduated PhDs and the kind of, I suppose, the question is just to get you to kind of reflect on and say a little bit more about that problem of kind of getting lost in the interdisciplines and whether you're whether you're incredibly cutting edge and discipline spanning or discipline bending or interdisciplinary work um, can can fail to be recognised or be legible to disciplinary um, gatekeepers and what you might do about what you might do about that as a as a as a younger law academic interested in working across and troubling those boundaries. Thanks, Ben. Other people probably have have navigated that much better than me. Um, so I'm probably a what not to do, I think. I mean, let's let's start by saying what are we talking about? Like how is it illegible? I mean, I think the first and and the first way and the most striking to me, like most frustrating to me, but probably nothing that we can actually affect right now is in kind of like global research quality um, rankings. Um, so when you fill those in, uh, you have to straight up name your discipline. And then they only ask you, all the questions are just about what's the, what are the best five institutions in the US for your discipline? And I'm like, well, I have so many important collaborators in the US, but none of them are in law schools. So I'm now being asked to rate law schools in the US when actually I don't I don't have any significant collaborators in any law school in the US. A couple now maybe, but the whole time I've been doing these, not at all. They're in creative arts sectors or anthropology or whatever. So there's that frustrating thing of like the university, you know, sending a really clear signal about what's how value is kind of made and that interdisciplinarity is not part of it. Um, the second thing is, I mean, there's a lot of, or depending on, I mean, it can be like your head of school or your department, like might just kind of sneer at interdisciplinary work. And, you know, if you're unlucky, that can become a kind of, a kind of form of disrespect or overlooking people because they're not helping tick, you know, the, lots of people leading academic departments are being driven by the same kinds of imperative as those ranking systems. So they naturally are looking you know, I've learned enough not to take this personally, but like heads of school look for who, what are their resources within the school and who can they get to sort of make into exemplars or or pump in order to tell narratives about their department or whatever. And so you can find yourself overlooked by those sorts of things as well, depending on the ethos of, of head of school. Another thing is promotions committees and stuff like that. That shouldn't be that much of a problem now that promotions committees don't really have any way of talking about the quality of your work except for testimonials from people. So as long as you've got those, you'll probably be okay. It's really just about how many outputs you've got as far as I can see. So that's not that much of a big deal. But I remember the first time I got a promotion, having my meeting with the then dean of the faculty who said, what's your research about? Because I looked at my CV and just had no idea how to reconcile my publications. And of course, I could see this neon line running through everything of, yes, well, this is what I'm doing. Can't you see? But people don't look they don't read all your publications and try and understand them. They just look at the titles and kind of go, what area of law do you work in? Because we can't tell. So, I mean, so there are some tips that obviously correspond to that. The first thing is don't be like me and try and sort of pay some sort of attention to the titles of your publications and your outputs and how they gel together in terms of your overall overall profile. I don't really like giving that advice because I certainly never did that. And ultimately, I don't think it's hurt me that much. But it, it would definitely be easier. My my first years as an academic would definitely have been easier if I had done that a little bit more. I think as well, teaching-wise, there's a kind of curse of accepting to teach anything. Quite often, people who don't have a really clear doctrine, if you have a really clear doctrinal area, then teach in it and try not to let your um, research stray too far from it personally, like a lot of kind of quote unquote theorists, um, I had government experience working in constitutional administrative law for the Australian government and in commercial property. So I was happy to teach public law and property law. I just, these were my areas of practical expertise and also theoretical interest. Um, but that, you know, that people don't look at your CV and go, wow, you can teach both property and con and admin. Instead, they kind of go, which one are you? Um, how, and how serious are you about either of these, you know? Um, so there's this sort of um, peril that, that that comes with that too. So, I mean, you're all really smart people. You can turn what I'm saying into advice. I'm not really giving advice, but but yeah, just warning warning signs. But I definitely think, I mean, so there's, there is something interesting about this though, in terms of like a really serious 
life sustaining research program, which I think um, in terms of trying to find your intellectual home, which I think what this is really kind of about and being able to talk about what that is and represent it to other people. I think that is more difficult if you are inherently doing interdisciplinary work. I think multidisciplinary collaborations uh, can be quite different where you've got a very clearly disciplinary, disciplinarily oriented project that needs multiple expertise. I think that's one thing. It's a different thing if you yourself are kind of a bit of an intellectual wanderer. To those people, I would say, yeah, try and create stability in your profile in the interim until you find the thing that really gels and is clear to everyone else what you're really doing, which can sometimes be a challenge, but definitely a challenge worth pursuing to to figure out how all your your intellectual vectors kind of can converge is a really, really rewarding uh, thing to try and worry about. That strikes me, unless anybody wants to jump in with a final question, I'm going to talk a little more slowly to let people do that if they want to stick their actual or their virtual hands up or lob into the chat function, they can do so. But in the absence of that, what Connell has just said really strikes me as a beautiful way to to end today's discussion. Connell, thank you. That has been really, really rich. I have learned a lot from, well, I've learned a lot from reading you over the years and have learned a lot now just listening to you reflect upon it today. That was really, really rich and a bunch of us, I'm sure, will have a lot to take away from those reflections. So thank you for your kind of generosity in coming along and talking to the group today and to spurring so many different questions for us to continue to to think about. And selfishly, Connell, I look forward to actually seeing you in the flesh tomorrow in the same city. Uh, it's It will be good to see you in Australia again. Everybody, thank you and yeah, join me and in, in... Thanks to everyone for contributing and discussing Yeah, it was great. Thank you, Connell. Thank you, everybody. And I'll see you tomorrow, Connell. Bye. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.